This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, looking this morning at verses 5 through 7. First Peter 5, 5 through 7, it's page 1016 there in the Bibles and the chairs. First Peter 5, beginning in verse 5. Hear the word of God. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for its beauty. We thank you for its power. We thank you that it is truth itself. Because you are truth itself. Father, we pray now for your blessing on our time of study in your word. We pray, uh, Lord, that you will equip our minds with a, a deeper and fuller knowledge of your word. But Father, we also pray that in studying and knowing your word, we would be transformed in our lives by the renewing of our minds by your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You all have at least one thing in common this morning. I see no exceptions. You're all wearing clothes. And that's a good thing. We like it that way. Some of you got up this morning and thought long and hard about what you were going to wear. Others didn't give it much thought at all. Some of you were dressed more formally. Others of you were dressed more casually. But Peter here writes about something that every Christian should think long and hard about, and something that every Christian should put on each day. You can't get it at Target or Kohl's. It's far more valuable than anything you might purchase at Neiman Marcus or Brooks Brothers. And without it, even the most fashionable dress looks a bit drab, and with it, even the most plain of garments looks Pretty magnificent. Peter is talking here, of course, about humility. As Christians, Peter says we are to display Christ-like humility in all of our relationships. Because humility is ultimately something that's seen in relationship. A person can be humble in and of himself, herself, but humility is displayed in the context of interacting with others. And so he's saying that as Christians, we're to display this Christ-like humility in all of our relationships. And so as we look at this passage, just these uh, few short verses this morning, Peter gives us a couple of instructions that we need to remember along those lines. First of all, he says, we are to show humility toward one another. Look at verse 5. 
He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you. Now, in the context, Peter, of course, as we saw last week, has been talking to the church. He gives instructions to the elders about how they are to shepherd the flock. And then the very first part of verse 5, he addresses the congregation. He addresses them as those who are younger. The word can mean young, it can mean new. But in the context, he's describing those in contrast to the elders of the church. So in effect, describing the congregation as a whole to be in submission to the shepherding leadership of the elders of the church. But then he quickly broadens that instruction to submission, not just the congregation to elders, but this is a a principle that applies among Christians generally. mentioned last week how Paul, before he tells wives to submit to their husbands, he says, uh, all of you to be in submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes, certain offices or positions in the church might call for leadership or might call for submission, but that occurs in a broader context in the church in which we have a Christ-like deference or submission to one another. And that's what he's talking about here. Clothe yourselves. He says, all of you. So elders, too, should be clothed with this kind of humility, certainly in their leadership as well as in their Christian lives. But this is something incumbent upon all Christians. He leaves room for no exceptions. All of you should clothe yourselves. And that that reference to clothe yourselves is a common idea we find in Scripture. You think, for example, of Paul in Colossians 3, uh, particularly says, put on these attributes. Uh, over all of them, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Think of Paul in Ephesians where he talks about putting off the old man as, as you would take off a garment and lay it aside hanging it up carefully or throwing it over a chair or whatever it is you do, uh, but also putting on that new man as putting on a new clean garment, who you are now in Christ. So this is a familiar image, although Peter uses a very rare uh, word. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the, in the New Testament, the word that he uses. Uh, some have seen here a reference to an apron, like a slave might wear, tying on this this apron. Don't know that's the case for sure, but it is an unusual word that he uses. It has the idea of clothing or putting on. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? What is it he says to put on? He says to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Again, what he's talking about here is certainly an attitude certainly an inner disposition, but it's something that plays out in relationship. To clothe yourselves with humility toward one another as you interact with one another. And that's the context in which it's seen. So how does that play out? He doesn't specify this, but just looking at the Scriptures as a whole, we can come up with some ideas of ways that this might play out. Humility toward one another would indicate a preference toward one another, or we might say in another way, a regard for one another. We think of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
In fact, he says, consider others' interests more important than your own. And that's part of that humility that Peter says we are to clothe ourselves with here. That we're not just looking out for number one. That we are concerned for one another. That we're willing to put our interests aside at times to let someone else have their way. To let someone else have what they would like. We don't always insist on our own way. We don't insist on being number one. We look out for the interests of others, and indeed, in a Christ-like way, we might lay aside our own comfort or our own convenience in order to further that of someone else. So, in preferring others above ourselves, that's one way that we clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. Another way that we could see it from Scripture here is a willingness to accept correction from one another. You know, the Scriptures say, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens Another, as Christians, we sharpen one another in our relationships. By, sometimes that takes place by encouraging. But sometimes that takes place by, uh, if necessary, uh, loving rebuke. And again, think of, of Paul confronting Peter in Galatians uh, when Peter was uh, compromising the gospel by his shrinking back from associating with Gentile Believers uh, betraying that oneness that we have in Christ Jesus. And Peter responds to that. We think, uh, for example, of Proverbs 15, verse 32. Proverbs has a lot to say about the wisdom of accepting correction. Uh, Proverbs 15, 32, one instance of that. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. You see, part of wisdom is uh, to accept when someone comes to you and confronts you or points out to you some sin or some defect in your life instead of becoming defensive as if there couldn't possibly be anything wrong with you and how dare they say anything to say, well, they may well have a point. I'll look at that. I'll examine that. We often learn most about ourselves from our enemies, from our harshest Critics And so wisdom is willing to accept correction from one another. Humility is willing to accept correction from one another, that we listen to each other, that we learn from each other in that way. Another way that we put on humility, clothe ourselves in humility toward one another, is, uh, is serving one another, is being willing to humble ourselves, to serve others, to look to the needs of others. John 13, uh, of course, is classic Passage on this, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. And Jesus, King of kings, right, Lord of lords, kneels before his disciples and washes their feet. And then he says to them, you see what I've done for you? And they say, well, certainly. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have, <clears throat> just as I have done for you. Now, in some churches, they actually practice foot washing. And if someone's feet need washing, that can be a useful thing to do. But of course, Jesus wasn't, it wasn't saying that we must wash one another's feet. He was saying we should serve one another, of which washing their feet, if they need that, is, is one example. Uh, but the needs of someone may be other than having their feet washed. They may need other things. And 
following Jesus' teaching in verse in uh, chapter 13 of the Gospel of John may mean doing other things for someone that they need done, but willing to take the time, the energy, maybe to humble yourself to go to them and do something for them that would serve them, that would help them. So these are just some ways we can think about how we would clothe ourselves in humility toward one another, uh, looking to their interests, looking out to advance their interests, so even sometimes at the expense of our own, uh, being willing to accept correction, to listen to one another, being willing to humble ourselves and serve one another. And notice the reason he says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, that is a quotation from Proverbs 3.34. It's one that James also picks up on in the passage that Mike read earlier, a New Testament reading, where he quotes that same thing. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The word opposes means he resists. In fact, it could have the idea of going to war against. Um, but but God, is he resists those. He opposes those, stands in the way of those who are proud, who lift themselves up. But he gives grace to, he assists, his favor is on the humble. And in fact, what that means, gives grace to the humble, might be fleshed out in verse 6, where it talks about God exalting those who humble themselves. So the reason we do this is, is because of God's disposition. If you are proud, if you are too haughty, too arrogant to sometimes put others' interests above your own, to listen to one another, to serve one another... Uh, God is not for you. He is opposed to you. He is opposed to that attitude in you. But when you humble yourself before others in those ways, then that gains favor in God's eyes in Christ Jesus, I would hasten to add. Uh, not that there's anything particularly meritorious in, it, in, in and of ourselves, but in Christ, that's something that has God's favor. He gives grace to those who humble themselves in that way. So the first area in which this clothing ourselves in humility plays out is in our relationships with one another. And that's essential to a healthy church. Uh, It's essential in our being able to get along with each other, to be a blessing to each other. Sometimes that may mean, you know, we've said something or done something that hurt someone to go to them and apologize. Or someone has done that to you and ask your forgiveness to give them forgiveness. For Christ's sake, we don't hold grudges. In all kinds of ways, we can talk about this humility playing out in our relationships with one another. Peter's concerned about that here. But he also mentions a second relationship, second direction in which this humility plays itself out. And that is, it characterizes itself by humility toward God. So we could say first that horizontal or level dimension, our relationships with one another, including as church members or husbands and wives or parents and children or children toward your parents. But then the second area is humility before God himself. Now, you might think that one would be easier. After all, we're not talking about, you know, a member of your family or a member of the church with you. We're talking about God Almighty. And yet, human nature being what it is, we're often proud and arrogant toward God. We're often unwilling to humble ourselves before God. But look at what Peter says there. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore. Notice both of these are active. He's not saying be humble, have humility. He's saying clothe yourself in humility, an action, something you do. Humble yourselves or abase yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 
Now, this humility before God includes, of course, humility itself. He mentions in verse 6, humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Interesting expression. It actually has an echo of the Exodus. That was an expression in the Old Testament that was often used of the Exodus. You think just a few references here, Exodus 13.9, Deuteronomy 3.24, Deuteronomy 4.34, Refer to God's strong arm. Refer to God's mighty hand by which he brings his people out of Egypt. That that was the great act of redemption in the Old Testament. That was what caused God's people to marvel. What, What other God has brought his people out of one nation and into another place the way the Lord God has? He led them out by his strong arm. He led them out with his mighty hand. And so Peter reminds us that this is the God of our salvation. This is the God who in Christ Jesus has triumphed over sin and death. This is the God who not only has created this universe, but recreated it in Christ Jesus and and made us new creations in Christ Jesus. So there's that echo of the Exodus and that reference to God's mighty hand. And we're to humble ourselves under that hand. The Egyptians refused to. Until finally, God had just about destroyed their country entirely, and he humbled them. But we are to willingly humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Uh, That means that we are to receive his salvation. The mighty hand is the God who saves. We are to receive his salvation, not, not vaunt ourselves in his presence. Think of Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, they're, they're both in the temple praying, and it says Jesus told this parable for the, for the benefit of those who refused to humble themselves. But there was the Pharisee who prayed very proudly, you know, said, thank God I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. You know, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I, all I get. And then he talks about the tax collector who who can't even lift his eyes toward heaven, but just strikes himself on the chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I'll tell you, it was that man rather than the Pharisee who went home a saved man who was justified because of his humility. He humbled himself, cast himself on the mercy of God while the Pharisee is boasting of all that he does. There are too many church members who are like that, like that Pharisee, not enough like the tax collector who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, but in so doing are the ones who truly have his salvation or justified by his grace. So humbling ourselves under his mighty hand means receiving his salvation. It means resting in his providence. This is probably one of the areas where, at least inwardly, we struggle most with humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because God's mighty hand not only redeems us, it rules over all things. And how easy it is to grumble, to complain, or even to be angry with God because of things that happen in our lives. We think of Job, the attitude that he had. Yes, Job questioned, Job struggled, Job wanted to get answers from God for what had been taking place. But underneath that, was a bedrock trust in God. We think of what he says in Job 13, 15, where he says, even though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. Kind of the Old Testament equivalent, you know, to Peter's answer when people left following Jesus and 
Jesus says to his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where do we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Well, well before Peter's time, Job, who is suffering terribly and, and does want to ask God questions and does want to get answers, ultimately says, though, he slay me, even though God strike me dead. I'll trust in him. What other choice do I have? Who else is there? That's the attitude that we need to have, to receive God's salvation, to trust in his providence, to rest in it. Yes, we might not understand it. Yes, it may be hard, but our attitude has to be that ultimately I do trust in God. Ultimately, I rest in God, even though my life may end in this world. Why? Verse 6, that at the proper time he may exalt you. One of the reasons that we don't want to humble ourselves before God is because we want to be exalted. We want to retain our dignity. We want to retain our standing. We want to retain our good name, our pride. But Peter says, no, humble yourself. God will see to it that you are exalted. God will see to to it that you are recognized as one of his own. God will see to it that your dignity and your value are protected and kept. And you'll be exalted in a far grander way than you would ever be if you try to protect that and keep that for yourself. So, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This kind of goes back to verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, where Peter describes himself as a witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Again, cross, then crowned. Humbling ourselves now. The Lord exalting us, showing us to be his, vindicating us, in his time. But humility toward God doesn't involve just humility. It involves trust. Sort of goes in with what we were talking about with Job, but Peter makes it specific in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, to these original readers, that could have included um, their social well-being, social standing, which they would lose in becoming Christians. It could include um, anxieties about their financial condition, about possible loss of employment or business because they would be known as Christians and people may not want to do business with them or hire them, whatever it might be. It could include even concerns, anxieties about physical safety uh, as the possibility of persecution toward them was very real. And for us, it can be some of the same kinds of things, financial concerns, uh, relational concerns, or relationships with family members or friends or others that are painful, that are hard, that, that keep us awake at night worrying about those things. Um, all kinds of cares that, and anxieties that we might have in this life. And Peter says, what are we to do with them? Well, we're to hold them, right? We're to hang on to them. We're to let them weigh us down. No, he says, cast those things on the Lord. A very vigorous expression, just just like tossing a great weight onto somebody else. Because he cares for you. Because he is concerned about you. That's what he says in the verse 7. Because he cares for you. Now, when I, when I read that, I was thinking about that. There's one passage more than any other that jumps out. And it's that great passage in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus himself really elaborates on this this whole idea that Peter 
maybe thinking about what Jesus said in Matthew 6, uh, says just he cares for you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25. Jesus says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink, uh, nor about your body, what you will put on, because life is more than food. You know, look at the birds. Look how God feeds them. Look at the lilies of the field. Look how beautiful they are and how well-dressed they are. Jesus says, if God clothes the grass of the field, which comes and goes, how much more will he not clothe you? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Well, the Gentiles seek those things. Jesus says, seek the kingdom, seek the Lord and his righteousness. These things will be provided for you. And again, verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Three times, do not be anxious because God cares for you, because God will provide for you, because God knows your situation. He will take care of you. Don't worry about it. Today's got enough troubles of its own. Don't borrow from tomorrow. Deal with what you need to deal with today and trust the Lord. Do not be anxious. Three times that's repeated. And Peter, I think, is just echoing what he heard first from the words of Jesus himself, from the mouth of Jesus himself, when he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Part of humility toward God is that element of trust. Instead of thinking, well, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to provide for myself. Now, do we work? Do we do those things? Yes, but we do it trusting that the Lord will work through them, will provide through those things. So humility and trust. You know, it's always a little bit dangerous for a preacher to preach on humility. It's probably more dangerous for a preacher to write a book about humility, and yet that's what Pastor C.J. Mahaney wrote. The name of the book is Humility. He said, you know, enough. He got enough of the funny looks of people when they learned he was writing a book about humility. So they were probably thinking the same thing he would be thinking, that anybody who would actually write a book about humility is probably completely disqualified to speak on the subject. Uh, but he points out, he writes it as one proud man who's seeking humility in his life. Uh, the name of the book is Humility, subtitled True Greatness. But in that book, he describes a conversation he had with Don Carson, D.A. Carson, who's professor at Trinity Evangelical Seminary. And Carson, in turn, was telling uh, Mahaney about a conversation he had with Carl Henry. Uh, Carl Henry was one of the foremost evangelical theologians in the second half of the 20th century, man characterized certainly by great learning and brilliance of mind, but also uh, deep humility and uh, true gentleness in his dealings with others. And uh, Dr. Carson asked Carl Henry how he had managed to retain that kind of humility over years of both scholarly and popular acclaim. And Mahaney, in the book, uh, says it this way. He says, listening to Dr. Carson, I sat poised with pen and paper, ready to record Carl Henry's answer. This was it. How can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? How can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? You see, there's no great secret to humility. It's just to stand beside the cross. It reminds us of our sin. The cross does. It reminds us that 
to use Paul's language to the Corinthians, we have nothing that we have not received. Our right standing with God, the righteousness we have before God, is itself a gift that God has given to us. Even the faith by which we receive it is a gift. And everything we have in this world that has been provided to us by the the goodness and the grace of God. Standing beside the cross reminds us of our sin. It reminds us that everything we have that's any good is, is a gift from the Lord. And we can't commend ourselves for it. We acknowledge the Lord's goodness to us. But the cross also reminds us of the love of God. Not only of our own sin, but of the love of God and his willingness to send his own son to die for us. Dear friends, that itself is tremendously humbling. That wicked as we were, God did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all. The secret to humility is simply to stand beside the cross. It's simply to keep your eyes focused on the cross each day of your life. To live as close to the cross as you possibly can. So whatever else you may be wearing this morning, have you clothed yourself in humility toward others? And before God, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the convicting reminder that it is of the need that we have to humble ourselves before one another and before you. Father, we know by nature we want to exalt ourselves. We want to live at the expense of others. We want to shake our fist in your face. But, Father, we thank you for your grace that has changed us. And we pray that we would live and show the same humil- humility that we see in our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.